This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 13 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, May the 11th. And it's been a big week, with Australian Treasurer Scott Morrison bringing down his third budget, and of course I'm going to look at that. But first, I'm going to talk to Dr Marguerite Evans-Galea, a scientist, executive and entrepreneur. She is Executive Director of the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM with the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. Dr Evans-Galea has led international research programs in cell and gene therapy for genetic disease and she'll be talking to us all about how Industry Mentoring Network in STEM works and what businesses can get out of it. And then I have a chat with RMIT economist Professor Sinclair Davidson analysing what's gone into this year's budget. But first, let's talk to Dr. Evans Galea. Marguerite, tell us about industry mentoring in STEM. The Industry Mentoring Network in STEM is a flagship initiative of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, and it marries up a PhD student early in their career, early in their studies, a senior level industry leader. 
So how does that work exactly? So it's a one-year mentoring program and so the student and the industry leader will meet for an hour a month thereabouts over the course of a year and during that year they'll talk about a range of different topics. Career related, it could be skills related, it could be about different types of careers that are available in industry, the landscape of industry. And we also host five state-level events to facilitate broader networking amongst the entire community, so with our mentors and our mentees. So which industries are affected by this? But the key industries that we focus on right now, thanks to funding from our industry growth centre partners, MTP Connect, NERA and METS Ignited, we currently focus on the medical, technology and pharmacological uh, areas, as well as energy resources and minerals resources. These are all the very important industries, aren't they? Key, very key industries and, and what's really exciting is the, the growth industry. How many students or how many PhD students are involved in this and how long has this been going on for? So it started as a small pilot in 2015 and 2016 and it was trialled in three different states, Victoria, Western Australia and South Australia in the different discipline areas and it was such a success and the survey data said so that we decided that we had to apply for funding and so it was awarded a large grant through MTP Connect to broaden the medical technologies pharmacological program nationally and so that's what we've been busy doing over the last year of the 2017 period and so now we are national we are on offer in every state which is really exciting that's a major milestone for us to reach where we can say universities would you like an industry mentoring program and so national level we are over 200 phd students and 200 industries so how do you pair them up so yeah it's a tough job and you've got to do it carefully you have to really think about it and do it um, in a way that's informative but also in a way that you feel the student will get something out of it as will the mentor because we want this to be a win-win relationship. It's very much a professional setting that they're, they're set up in, and so we match with a committee looking at the mentors and the mentees, and we look at what skill sets there are, what areas of interest there are, and we do our best to match very carefully. The idea of having a committee is that the two IMNIS staff on that committee know the mentees really well because we've been through all of their expressions of interests and applications and we talk to the universities but then we have two senior level leaders who know the mentors really well so it just allows us to get a bit more information about these people and whether it might work or not what do the mentors get out of it that's a great question and it's one that a lot of people ask because they are completely volunteering their time these are really generous leaders that are sharing their time their expertise their energy and really it's, yes, they get a feel-good moment about it. They really are people who have reached a very senior level. These are often CEOs and executives who are very senior in their career and they want to give back. They really feel, you know, they've had a good run and they do want to give back. But I do believe that they also get, you know, that, that information of what it's like to be a young professional coming through. You know, they're at the coalface with that student. They get to hear about their day-to-day challenges and successes and they take the journey with them. And so I think they actually just get insight, enormous insight into what it's like to be in academia today. 
And I suppose, too, it would give them enormous insight into what's happening in the industry as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So they get a feel, particularly at the events when we're sharing information and through the network itself, they get a flavour of what's coming through, what's the latest and the greatest that's of interest and and cutting edge. Well, this this is is actually quite a key issue now for industry leaders because they have to keep up with trends, they have to keep up with what is going down and – that's actually quite an issue because many get left behind. Absolutely, particularly on the technology side. It's such a disruptive phase right now and so they're very interested to learn a great deal about that aspect. But I think too that some of these sectors do grow so rapidly and so quickly that it's really hard to keep up with everything. And so a young person who's perhaps on social media or across a number of different things can actually share information as well. But it's also, you know, an opportunity for them to start developing their workforce of the future. You know, a lot of these people are employing young people just like their mentee. And so it allows them to to give them a head start and identify the skills they need to succeed in the industry should they choose to go there or to succeed in research if they stay there. So potentially they could actually pick up the mentee as an employee or an associate. Absolutely. I think I think a really positive mentoring relationship often turns into a sponsorship. And so the difference between mentoring and sponsoring is very much championing that person. So they will put them forward for things. And so once someone has become a sponsor for a young person, they will often, you know, open their door for opportunities. And it could be either within their own organisation, and we've certainly had examples of that, where a mentee has then gone into their mentor's organisation to work after the program has finished, or it could just be connecting them with a colleague who they strongly recommend and opening a door there. So, I mean, Australia has a very low rate of uh, mentor-mentoree relationships, doesn't it? According to OECD figures, that's as I understand it. We certainly have a very um, low level of interactions between small to medium enterprise, big businesses and academia. And so that's why I see the industry mentoring network in STEM as a game changer, because you're starting relationships between people. People make research and innovation happen. And you're starting that relationship really early in a young person's career. And so they're able to then access that network at any point in their future career. If they stay in research and within academia and they want to engage with industry for a collaboration or to to scout ideas, they can. They know how to do that. We've given them the skills and the confidence to reach out and have that conversation very easily, but importantly, the network. They can also then, if they find that they want to transition into industry for a career, it's much, much easier for them because, again, they can access that network, but they also have the confidence on how to do that and where they might like to go. This would be also quite good for universities too because it would give them much greater, closer linkages with business. Universities that have taken up the Industry Mentoring Network in STEM have demonstrated visionary leadership, in my opinion. They have really just said, yes, we're going to help develop our young people and our students of the future, our STEM leaders of the future, but we're also going to 
access this incredible group of industry leaders. You know, universities benefit as well and they see that opportunity there where they just get, it's again, it's coming back to people and those connections. And once you have that contact, they can connect you with someone else. Just like a spider web, you can head out into the network. And so, yes, universities are very keen to, to come along to events and network with industry mentors at every single event. There's often a representative or, or 10 from the university as well. We also encourage the students to connect their PhD supervisor with their industry mentor at the third event. And so our third event of the five is all about STEM careers. And often a PhD supervisor in academia will express that they don't know anything about the careers in industry because rightfully so they're an academic and so we bring them along to that event and invite them along to try and educate them as well well the beautiful part about that is is it creates better supervisors it actually facilitates their growth as supervisors and expands their reach and networks it's a win for the mentee a win for the mentor and a win for the university all round quite extraordinary now so where do you see this developing in the future Oh, that's the exciting phase, right? Because we're taking it to the next level. Once you're on offer nationally, it's it's its growth potential is enormous. And so really we're putting out the call to industry leaders at an executive level to, to reach out to us if they're keen to be a mentor and work with a young person, you know, an early career individual, let us know because we're actively seeking mentors all the time because we know that as this program grows in profile and interest, the universities are finding students are banging on their doors. The other thing we're finding is that we have postdoctoral fellows now reaching out on a regular basis. And this really is a group uh, within our within our career structure for STEM that are in need. And so they really do want to know about the opportunities more broadly. And I think, you know, that it's got a lot of growth potential. This is, this is quite exciting and it could be open a whole lot of new dimensions for industries and universities and students. Correct. I completely agree with you. Well, Maggie, thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now let's hear from economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, the government has introduced a budget that brings forward the surplus, cuts down on debt and delivers $140 billion worth of tax cuts. What's your take on it? I think it's a very interesting budget. It's a, a very liberal budget. It's a combination of um, dealing with where we are now, but it's almost got a, a, a Costello-esque flair to it, even though Peter Costello, before the budget came out, was, was very critical of the government. So I, I think it's a, it's a very, very clever budget, but it's based on promises and things happening in the, the far future. Okay, and of course there are very few spending cuts there. Um, almost nothing, actually. Um, so there's some changes to, to R&D expenditure that I saw, uh, which um, I, I think is probably a good idea. So they're going to be uh, making the R&D tax uh, credit a little bit less generous than what it is, but they've carved out biotech firms, which is very much a case of government picking winners. So that's the carve-out is probably not a good idea, but I think making R&D tax uh, incentives less generous is a good policy. And they have cut $83 billion to the ABC over three years, which is very minuscule. Um, there are a lot of things they could have cut, a lot of things they should have cut. Such as? Um, the NDIS is, is unaffordable. 
Um, government spending on national security is is unaffordable. The uh, the increase in border security for for um, checking security on parcels. Um, is is a waste of money as far as I can work out. Um, I suspect that's got more to do with their their wanting to uh, increase GST on foreign goods than is actually to do with national security. So those sorts of things, I, w- I would have cut more money out of the ABC. Um, this is an organisation which should be moving to a more sustainable self financing model than simply suggest uh, I'm relying on government largesse. Um, so those sorts of things, um, education expenditure. Um, I, I think. There, there's a big debate around what the value of what Australians are getting. So every single year we see um, our students are performing less and less well on, on national scores around literacy and math skills and all this sort of stuff. And every year we're throwing more and more money at education. So I would be looking at those sorts of things saying, well, what are we actually doing to for all this money we are getting? Rather than throwing more money and throwing more consultants, um, the Gonski report came out last week and is almost incoherent. Um, it's unsurprising that our, our school kids can't speak English because whoever wrote that report uh, can't speak plain English either. So there, there are a lot of things where there's actually a lot of hard work that can be done. Um, even even in the good things in, in, in the budget that, that, that came out last night. Uh, so abolishing the 37% tax bracket uh, seven years into the future is, is a good policy. It actually flattens the tax schedule. But this has been described as a baby boomer budget. If you think the youngest baby boomers are now late 50s, um, they're going to be retired before that tax cut ever benefits them. Um, anybody who's currently in their 50s is going to see very little of that tax cut. So this is actually a, a young person's, if, if, you, if you dare call people in their 40s and younger, young. Um, this is actually a young person's tax cut, not an actually baby boomer's tax cut. So um, I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, but what I do like about the budget is not so much the, the gory details, because we can always argue around the, good, the gory details, and of course it's all got to get through the Senate, so there's going to be a lot of changes, but to the actual structure of the budget. What's interesting about the structure of the budget is two things. One, they've put a cap on tax revenue of 23.9%, and two, they've promised to abolish the 37% tax bracket, which is going to make the tax uh, uh, schedule a lot flatter, except for people who are in the very top tax bracket. Now, we can't actually end up, which, which now the settings are for, we can't actually end up with a two-step tax system where one is at 32% and the other one is at 48 or 47%, depending on how you want to count very levy, uh, various levies. So at some point, a future government is going to have to give some thought to lowering that top tax bracket as well or increasing the threshold so high that it affects very, very few people. So there's actually some tough political decisions down the line that actually are baked into what was said last night. And it's going to be very interesting to, 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 to watch how that all unfolds. The other thing is the, the, the 29.3% uh, uh, tax revenue of GDP limit. Now, uh, there's been a lot of talk in, in the media that this is an arbitrary number, and it's probably completely arbitrary. It's probably no good, no, no better than... 24% or 23.8% or whatever number you want to pick. But what I like about it is that the government has actually picked a number. And they've actually also want to bake into the community an expectation as to how much tax revenue the government is going to be raising. And this creates what the, the Nobel Prize winning economist James Buchanan used to refer to as a tax constitution. 
whereby people can form expectations about what's going to happen in the tax system in the same way we form expectations what's going to happen in the political system. Um, and generally speaking, most countries don't have tax constitutions. We started making a step towards having a tax constitution when the previous Labour government brought in the, uh, um, the debt ceiling. Of course, the first thing the, the incoming Liberal government did in 2013 was abolish the, the debt ceiling. But I think a debt ceiling combined with a tax revenue uh, a ceiling would actually be a good step towards sustained responsible financial behavior by government. The big elephant in the room, of course, is what is the opposition leader going to say on Thursday night? Because, um, as I've been arguing for some weeks now, the next election is a tax policy, budget policy election. And I think the opposition also have some very interesting ideas as to what can and should be done in that particular space. So I think it's going to be very interesting. Um, after last night, the, 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 the structure of, of the budget is very interesting, and I think it's going to be very interesting how the opposition leader responds on Thursday night. It's interesting uh, we say it's, a, it's an election budget, but uh, as uh, Michael Pascoe put it today, uh, the to use a technical term, $10 a week is bugger all. And how much of that is going to affect the voters? Um, I I suspect it's not going to affect the voters very much at all. Um, This is all about image and all about perception and all about the notion of having a plan. Um, $10 a week in the grand scheme of things here or there is not even going to be noticed. I think that's probably two coffees. Um, it used to be a coffee and a milkshake or a, or a sandwich and a milkshake uh, tax cut. I, th- I think we're down to two coffee milk, uh, uh, tax cuts. But I think it's the the image and the perception of being on top of things, which which, which comes, brings me back to my initial point that this is a Costello-esque kind of budget in terms of it gives a broad vision, a perception of the future. There's, there's a plan. Um, for the last several years, budget nights have always been kind of characterized by not really having a plan, by not really knowing what we want to do next or where we are going. I think the government is now telling a good story. The economy is doing well. Revenues are rebounding. And we have a plan to cut taxes. Of course, in seven years' time, which is two, maybe three elections away. But nonetheless, this is a stick-with-us plan and we will deliver. And the narrative has also already been set up, uh, harking back to Paul Keating. Uh, Paul Keating promised tax cuts on the never-never and reneged, but we won't. That's the story that they're putting up. And I think it's a story that actually may work well. I I haven't heard too many people complaining or squealing just yet. Um, I think people are intrigued. People are interested where it's going to go. Um, the opposition, of course, have complained and other political parties, but that's actually their jobs. Um, and I, I think that this does put the, the opposition leader on the spot. He's going to have to his thinking cap on and telling us a story on, on Thursday night because the government have articulated a clear pathway. And, of course, the, the other elephant in the room is events. I think the, the expression was events, dear boy. Um, if, if the economy doesn't continue to grow after next year at 3.75%, um, if things do go horribly wrong, if there are external shocks to the world economy and so on and so forth, all of those things are outside of the government's control. But what the government is saying, the things that we can control, this is what we want to do. And it's full steam ahead. So um, I think people like the, the having a plan, having a vision, having an idea of what to do.
The interesting part, of course, is that uh, the projections of wages growth are far more optimistic what the Reserve Bank has. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm, I'm not overly worried about that sort of thing. The, the government has a plausible story around there. Um, their view has always been that uh, company tax cuts are going to eventually materialise in wage growth. Now, not immediately, but certainly over time. And, and that, that's more or less what economists would predict as well. Um, over time, corporate tax cuts will, will, will manifest in wage growth. And that's also a, a, a trigger to the Senate. If you want to see this kind of wage growth, you have to give us our tax cuts. Um, whether or not this will happen fast enough to get the government out of, out of any difficulty, I, I can't necessarily say. But I, I have to say um, I suspect both the Treasury and the RBA are wrong on their forecast of wage growth. They're just wrong in different ways. But um, I think bureaucrats are particularly bad at forecasting the future um, along with everybody else. So I, I, I tend not to pay too much attention to the, the, the very front bit of the budget always tells us the, the economic forecast and what's going to happen. Um, I, I tend to not worry too much about that, but what's actually what, – what the government is doing about things that they can plausibly influence. And wage growth is not something government can plausibly influence. They've got to pick a number and run with it. And I think that's what they've done. So, Sinclair, in summary, the budget is a very clever document pitched at voters for the upcoming election. Uh, But the uncertainty is about, as you put it, events. Events, events, dear boy. It was Harold Wilson, I think, is it? Events, dear boy. And, of course, a, a week is a long time in politics and a year is a long time in politics. Um, even from the Maifa, we, we, we've seen big changes, and that was just before Christmas. So in five months, we've had big changes on the upside, and the government have been very quick to capitalise. And, of course, that's what they would do always, so that doesn't surprise me. But the it's intriguing, it's interesting – it's a stick with us, and this is what we plan to deliver over the next seven years. And, of course, um, now is the selling. Um, will Voterland believe them? Um, or as uh, Graham Richardson always says, the mob. Um, and uh, one of his great comments is the mob always finds you out. So the government have articulated a plan, and it's whether or not they can plausibly implement this plan and plausibly sell this plan. But in the meantime, it's very intriguing and interesting. Well, Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your analysis. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the federal government's election budget hands out $140 billion in income tax cuts over the next decade. The budget locks in a surplus within three years and forecasts a massive reduction in debt before 2030. The budget's centrepiece is a seven-year tax plan rolled out in three phases – providing up to $200 a year for low-income earners and up to $530 extra a year for people on middle incomes. For higher earners, the income bracket is listed from $87,000 to $90,000 before they start paying the 37% tax rate. The government plans to abolish the 37% tax bracket completely on the 1st of July 2024 and lift the top threshold to $200,000. This will see 94% of the workforce earning between $41,000 and $200,000 paying just 32.5 cents in the dollar. The top personal tax rate of 45% will kick in for those earning $200,000 from July 2024. Treasurer Scott Morrison's third budget has forecast a $2.2 billion surplus in fiscal 2020 with an underlying cash deficit of $18.2 billion this financial year. 
reducing to 14.5 billion forecast in 2018-19. A surplus of 11 billion dollars is projected in 2020-21, with continuing budget surpluses building up to a projected surplus of more than 1% of GDP by 2026-27. That is on the back of a revenue windfall which will see net debt as a share of GDP expected to peak at 18.6% of GDP in 2017-18, with projections of it falling to 14.7% by 2021-22. This has allowed the government to unveil a budget aimed at boosting its flagging poll ratings with modest tax cuts and more support for the elderly. But the plan could struggle to be implemented before the first round of modest tax cuts which start from this July. For the elderly, there's a pledge to create 14,000 new aged care places costing $1.6 billion over four years. The budget has also allocated $83 million to improve mental health services in nursing homes. The government's 10-year plan to reduce company taxes for all businesses from 30 to 25% is currently stalled in the Senate. Nonetheless, the budget extends the instant tax write-off on spending under $20,000 for another financial year to June 30, 2019. This will be at a cost of $350 million over the forward estimates. Employers who take on certain older workers will get up to $10,000 in wage subsidies. The government says the elderly can earn up to $300 a fortnight without losing their right to a state pension. The budget also provides for increased infrastructure spending with new bridges, highway upgrades, rail lines and airports. It also allocates $2.4 billion to boost Australia's technological infrastructure. This will include funds for a national space agency, research in artificial intelligence, better satellite imagery and more accurate GPS. While the government has pledged $41.5 million over seven years to ensure secure, reliable and affordable energy, Mr Morrison made no mention of solar and wind. The budget has promised $130.8 million to the Australian Taxation Office over four years to increase compliance activities, including additional audits and prosecutions, with a focus on overclaiming of deductions such as work expenses and rental losses. The Tax Office crackdown aims to raise $1.1 billion in additional revenue. Now, the losers are the ABC, migrants, welfare recipients, foreign aid, progressive taxation and climate action. They're the biggest losers in the federal 2018-19 budget, which in turn favours churches, tax cuts, pensioners, spies and superannuation. Losers include the ABC, which will have its funding slashed by $83.7 million over three years from 2019, migrants, who will now have to wait four years to receive welfare benefits, welfare recipients with no ex- announcements on New Start but an expansion to the error-riddled robo-debt crackdown, and foreign aid, which will be cut by another $140 million to reportedly its lowest level ever. People seeking asylum have again lost out, this time to the tune of $68 million cut in support services. On the winner's end, the controversial school chaplains program will be extended by a whopping $250 million over four years, ACO and ACES will get funding increases, and super exit fees will be abolished. Now to other news, and in seasonally adjusted terms, the ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series eased slightly in April, slipping 0.2%. That was the third consecutive monthly decline. In annual terms, growth slowed to 8.6% in April. That's down from 11.5% the previous month. 
On the other side, Australian business conditions jumped to record-matching highs in April as firms reported broad-based strength in sales, profits and employment, suggesting the economy has started the second quarter in healthy shape. The National Australia Bank survey showed its index of business conditions rose 6 points to 21 in April, far above the long-run average of 5.5 and matching the highest reading since the survey began in 1997. The survey's measure of profitability gained 6 points to 22 in April, while its sales index firmed 7 points to a very high 28. The employment index added 4 points to 13, while the often volatile measure of business confidence rebounded 2 points to 10. Conditions increased in all industries except for manufacturing and retail and were strongest in mining, finance, business and property, construction and recreation and personal services. On the other hand, retail spending was flat, according to the Australian Business Bureau of Statistics, coming in at $26.4 billion in the month of March. It rose by 0.0% flat, missing market expectations of a 0.2% monthly increase. And for the March quarter, retail trade was up 0.2% to $78.2 billion. Now, Westpac has delivered a 6% rise in interim cash earnings to $4.25 billion, driven by growth in mortgages and lower bag debts in the business bank. The result came in just above analyst expectations and was driven by a 12% jump in earnings in the consumer bank in the six months to March 31 and a 13% increase in business bank earnings compared with the year before. And in the wake of the Royal Commission, the ANZ Bank has moved to reset the ways it pays its financial planners, putting more emphasis on customer satisfaction rather than revenue collection. Sales incentives for financial planning bonuses are being removed, and those planners who don't measure up will be quickly removed. The bank is accelerating its program to back thousands of customers who were charged for financial advice they didn't get. Now, the Financial Services Royal Commission is investigating a series of scandals, including the fee-for-no service issues, where customers of major banks were charged for advice they didn't get. The changes announced by the ANZ include removing all sales incentives for bonuses and only assess performance on customer satisfaction, ANZ values and risk and compliance standards. Quickly identify and remove planners that provide inappropriate advice. Two audit fails and the contract will be terminated. Employing only new planners with a relevant undergraduate degree and industry certification and requiring existing planners to be enrolled in further necessary training by January 2019. Committing to completing compensation on about 9,000 current inappropriate advice cases by the end of the year. And finally, offering an advice review at no expense for any financial planning customers who may have concerns about their current financial position. Other interesting piece of news is that ailing vacuum cleaner company Godfrey's has announced a profit downgrade with sales plummeting 27% and profit falling 30% following an unsuccessful television advertising campaign which did not resonate with its customer base. As a result, the company's board has recommended shareholders accept the takeover bid from 99-year-old major shareholder John Johnson, who owns 28% of the company. Johnson, who will turn 100 in July, was one of the founders of Godfrey's in the 1930s. He's made an all-cash bid of $0.32 cents a share through his family-owned Arcade Finance. Since it listed in 2014 at $2.75, Godfrey's has suffered falling sales and has undergone numerous changes in management. 
Its shares this week were trading at only 28 cents. A takeover by Mr Johnson will see Godfrey's removed from the Australian Securities Exchange and returned to private ownership. And the bloodletting from AMP's disastrous appearances at the Bank and Financial Services Royal Commission has continued with three more directors leaving the board. The decision by directors Vanessa Wallace and Holly Kramer not to seek re-election and Paddy Akopians to step down at the end of the year is aimed at reducing investor wrath at Thursday's annual general meeting. The big institutional investors had been mobilising a protest vote against the board after allegations of criminal misconduct, including misleading the corporate regulator ASIC. Those were the allegations that emerged at the Commission. And Ms Wallace and Ms Kramer were two of the three directors facing a re-election vote. And finally, Orica has slumped to a weaker-than-expected $229.3 million half-year loss after suffering several bouts of unplanned maintenance and reporting a $352.9 million worth of impairments and provisions. And that's it for this week. And next week, we have a fantastic interview with Johnny Cooper, all the way from London. And Johnny Cooper works with business coaches around the world, and he helps them find more clients. That should be a fantastic interview. And in the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you all the news and talking business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.